Hey there, I'm Rebecca Carter, and welcome back to Not Nosy. This is episode two uh, of this new podcast that I've started, where I'm basically interviewing people that I know and admire that are artists and trying to learn more about them, about their lives, about their art, and just having a nice conversation uh, that we can share with, uh, I guess, the world. In this episode, I'm talking with Tia Lovings. I know Tia through Hit Record, and we've worked on um, some comedy projects together. She's a writer. She's a writer of uh, of all kinds. And gosh, it was just a really great conversation. And I didn't know it would go the way that it did, uh, but I really enjoyed it. She's a very kind of old soul, kind of wise beyond her years. She's a similar age to me, but I feel like she's lived about twice the life that I have. Um, She's very thoughtful, and we talk a lot about writing, but at first you'll hear us talk quite a bit about motherhood. So I I hope you enjoy the journey of the conversation. Regarding audio quality, uh, we did something different for this one uh, as I was still learning. So there's um, – it's it's good. <laughs> Again, it's good, but I'm sorry that it's not perfect. Um, and I did – after this episode, I learned uh, some tricks that I needed to deal with in order to present you some better quality for the future. And before we get into the – podcast itself. I just want to say thanks so much for checking this out. I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe and rate the podcast and and leave a review. These things are really helpful, especially to new podcasts. Um, so thank you so much. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Tia Levings. Born in Florida. No, I was right? born in Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And then, and then you guys moved to Florida. Yeah, in the eighties, um, there was a construction boom down there, down here. Okay. I guess my dad was in. Um, he built furniture and houses and stuff, and the economy kind of tanked up there. So um, they moved to Jacksonville to build the Mayo Clinic when it was here. When it was first coming here, and that just led to another thing, you know, job after job. So we moved here and. So I've been raised here since I was 10, which is, it's like enough of my childhood was spent up north where I feel like that's my internal clock in my seasons. But most of my memories and like formative high school years and everything were here. So I feel like a Floridian, but nobody in Florida is from Florida. So, Right. Well, that's exactly my story because I was born in Boston. And when I was 10 years old, we moved to Sarasota. Uh, Do you feel that dichotomy all the time? Like, Like, it's so hot here. Well, I'm lately, I'm not loving the heat, but I hate the cold. Like, oh. I hate it. Like, even my kids, they want to see snow and they want to see snow falling. And I start to look and I just start thinking about how cold my feet are going to be. And like, I'm, I'm the kind of person like, I'll put on like five pairs of socks, I'll have like three pairs of pants. I think you guys have seen me. Like, when it's like yeah. in the 60s, below, you know, if it's in the 60s, I am miserable. Like, wow. it's, I am so cold. But also, I'm not. I'm not loving the. I'm not loving the heat lately, yeah. and I'm really. I'm missing like 
hills and like Mm -hmm. the ability to go hiking and you know because I've lived in other places when after college I moved around a lot and stuff and I'm I miss the seasons the clock like the seasonal clock I look for change and there isn't any change here it's so static and it is flat but I when I lived in Tennessee I missed the Florida sun in February I I was used to having sun in February and that grayness that gray rain crap look when was that? When did you live in Tennessee? Um, so in 2000, 2004, at the end of 2004, um, we moved to Tennessee. I was with husband 1.0. Uh, yeah. The first guy. Um, so yeah. I had the we had the kids, and we moved to Tennessee to um, kind of start our lives over. We were on this. I had a website called Living Deliberately, and we, well, I started it when we moved to Tennessee, but um, the goal was to, like, kind of homestead and start life over. So we moved to Tennessee and then things got very twisted and fucked up and <laughs> bad. Like, I don't even know where to start in that story. I'm starting in a very strange place. But the short answer to your question is we moved there from 2004 <laughs> to 2007, in which case we got a very violent, ugly divorce. And um, I moved back to Florida basically to hide by spending uh. hiding. So um, and started my life over at that point with with my kids. So. so, yeah, I know. I feel like there's so much I want to dig into. So you, so you grew up like your later part of your childhood in Jacksonville where mm-hmm. you are now. Mm-hmm. How big's your family? Um, so it was my mom, my dad and my sister, just the four of us. Okay. And it was pretty standard, normal. Like we were Southern Baptist. I was very involved in my church, like youth group, seven days a week kind of involved. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was very, like, that was my whole, like, world. I was in the orchestra and uh, the marching band at school. And so, really full. Um, yeah. And art was a big, big, big part of my high school. So, I expected to go to art school. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, mostly money, I guess. I was going to go to SCAD, and it's so expensive to go, even back then, 20 years ago. <coughs> Longer than 20 years ago. Um so I got married young and I had my babies young, which was kind of a life goal for me. So that wasn't off track. Right. Um, and How old were you? I was 19 when I got married and 21 when my firstborn yeah. arrived. Um, I always wanted five kids. So um, you got four. I actually have five. Um, my, you have five? Yeah. So my, I have a little girl, uh, Clara. She died. She was in the middle. So I had Andrew and Celia. Then Clara, okay. Clara had something called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which um, I can tell you with the, the Cliff's Notes version of the story. Um, when you're in utero, you only use half of your heart because your lungs aren't activated yet. Okay. So everybody just uses half of their heart. And then at the time that you're born, this little tube called a ductus opens up between your heart and lungs and it begins pumping blood through and oxygenating your blood and you use all four chambers of your heart in babies that have hypoplastic hearts they only have two chambers so there is no other half of the heart to go to um so but in utero they develop normally so they're born full birth weight she was eight pounds um she had full head of red hair she was gorgeous she looked completely pink and healthy and then um sometime in the first three days that ductus opens and then they like their SIDS babies or they like it's just usually an undetected heart defect before the days of detailed sonograms so um, we found that she had some kind of defect I went into early labor and we found some kind of defect they weren't sure exactly 
Um, right. And so she had, when she was born, they were accurately diagnosed her. We went to Atlanta because I'd heard about that surgery before. We actually had a friend who'd had a baby with that same defect. And oh. um, she moved to Atlanta and then married her heart baby's heart surgeon. <laughs> so, what? So I know it's a crazy story, but um, they were friends of our family. And to get it even weirder, that friend was the daughter of the father who hired my dad back when he was working for Mayo. So like... Just, just yeah, this weird overlap. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that was the family. And that was the friend of the family that had had the heart baby that had the same defect as my baby. So we went to... Atlanta, and she had, uh, it's a series of three surgeries they do, one week, six months, and three years. Um, she had her first surgery. It was a success, but she also had some midline defects. Um, they were kind of minor, weird stuff, like genetic stuff that was a deal to the doctors but didn't mean anything to me. Like the shape of her kidney was a little different. She had an extra okay. crease on each of her thumbs. Her head was a little small. So, like, But those are all midline. Um, and something in that they think um, impacted the way her lungs couldn't couldn't recover from having a surgery. Uh, they put in a they put in a artificial ductus. It's like a little Teflon tube, and um, so she didn't. Her lungs couldn't bounce back. It took. She was like nine weeks in ICU, and then um, and she also had cleft soft palate, so she wasn't breastfeeding. But we eventually uh-huh. got like. A feeding tube going and everything was ready looking good to go home the night before she was going to go home she choked she aspirated in her sleep and she went into cardiac arrest and she died the night before we were going to take an ambulance home so that was in 99 and then i had um wheaton a couple years later and then rowan my baby uh, a couple years after that and um and talk about Clara openly because she completely changed my life. I had never lost even a grandparent until right. I lost my daughter. And um, she's part of my whole life story. So I just can't. I would also, yeah. I also really figured out really fast that the shitty feeling that you have when you don't honor someone's memory and you say, oh, yeah, I have four kids. Um, that feels worse than just having the initially awkward conversation of, oh, no, actually, there's another one in there. Let me tell you her story. I would much rather have that conversation than than feel like I'm hiding her little light. So, Well, yeah, because then, I mean, that's almost, and it's not something I've gone through, but like uh, how you don't tell someone you're pregnant because Mm -hmm. you might, you're afraid you might miscarry and then maybe you do miscarry. And now you've been through this entire emotional journey and absolutely no one knows about yes. it. And it just becomes a weight. Yes. Also, um, there has been so many times, more times than I could count, when a woman who's been through infant loss or pregnancy loss uses the fact that I was open about Clara right. as a portal to share. And she ha- finally has a space to talk about where it's completely safe and normal. This happens. And it something like that has happened to almost everybody I know. So to have... um Pregnancy loss is just so frequent, and we, our culture right. doesn't really create space to talk about it. So I do. Yeah. You got me near tears right now. Oh Sorry. No. <laughs> kind of. I, I mean, mean, Clara was wonderful. And you had your two little ones yeah, already. I did. And were they with, same with like your parents or something when you it were was going chaos? Yeah. They went from, we had, um, we were still in those Baptist churches at that time. And so those families 
were very, very loving. Okay. They, they came in. My kids were rotated around a lot. They went from different grandparents to families from church who were helping. But our communities really, really saturated us in love. They gave us a car to use. Um, I was at Ronald McDonald House for free for all that time. Um, okay. And after she died, um, so many stories around her death. But I'll skip that part and go to the after the part. Um my older kids helped me survive. I do not believe I could have made it through grieving her um, without them because they yeah. were like, I used to say they were my grace incarnate. They would help me get up every morning. They would help me um, stay in the present moment because of the needs they had. They, and they had missed their mom. Yeah. My baby was only 18 months old when I left. They were both potty trained before I left. And then they took two and a half years to <laughs> recover from all that moving and sloshing around that they had been through with all those different right. people. So, um, yeah, that helped me get through that first year, which was hell, was legitimate hell. Um, and then for about, I would say, 13 years, I was in this place where um, Clara was somebody I talked about. Definitely the life changes I was going through I talked about. Um, she was very, I kept her very visible. And I was I was very much resistant to the idea that, there had been any good that came from it or any purpose. Like I, that kind of talk makes me crazy, especially back right. then. Um, because. Oh, like it happened yeah. for a reason. Yeah. Or something oh, like oh that. the platitudes that we got from those same Christians that were like, well, we just didn't pray hard enough, which like oh. me, that is, if you have a vending machine, God that can't save a baby, then I don't want to, I'm not interested. You know, like it's, there's no reason for that kind of tragedy. It just, like I can, I could go to the place where I said, okay, this is part of the the human experience. Suffering happens. Right. Suffering happens to everybody. Nobody's immune from it. This is our version. You know, this is what. Thank God, we don't have some of the things other people on the planet are suffering. But I wasn't. I couldn't say, well, yeah, like this was um, for any purpose. Then there was a time. There was this really profound Sunday. I was at church with um, my family. And there was a family there who had a very, very medically sensitive child and was like this baby was completely nonverbal, couldn't, had no motor skills, was when one of those wheelchairs where it's basically a rolling life support system. And I just had this super profound realization of, oh my God, I've all this time I have thought about coming home with a healthy baby and raising little girls and mm -hmm. raising my family. I would have come home with a probably medically sensitive baby like that who was completely confined within their body. Like she'd right. had strokes because of that heart surgery. There was, when you look at a little baby, you can't tell what their cognitive development is going to become. And in my situation, I was in a very abusive marriage and I would have had three kids under three. Those two things alone are really hard. You add into that um, the medical you know, headaches and everything that would have come. I just had this moment of the first gratitude that right. it went the way it went because it almost needed to. Like, it was the yeah. most merciful outcome for everybody. Um, and so it's changed. That that realization has changed how I look at it in the past uh, six, seven years um, where I just feel really free from the grief. I feel like I get to honor her memory and her experience, but I also understand that things worked out the way they needed to for everyone and I don't understand that but um, I can, I'm grateful for it right yeah
Oh, wow. And you're going through all that at like, what, are you 23 years old at I that point? I baby myself. I think I 20. was 23. I, most of my 20s. No, maybe a little. So for my 20s, my entire 20s, I was growing people or feeding people and dealing with right. all of that. And I kind of forgot like how old I was at every age, you know. Um, when and I look back you- at pictures, I look like an old lady. I look, oh. I look younger in my, I look older in my 20s than I do now in my 40s. Just, it's just crazy. <laughs> Was your first baby born at home? You did. Yes. You did, yes. So yes. I, had, I had Andrew. Um, oh, we get to talk about home birth. I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's, I'll tell you my big question. Cause I had my second baby at home, my first baby at a, a birthing center. So both times with midwives, but the second, mm-hmm. but um, I had to meet someone that had a, a, that experience in order to even understand that it existed as an option. So I want to know how also how uh, someone that's so young knows about this. Is this because of your family or your church or like, yeah, so kind of. So, um, so this is a cool story too. So when, um, when I went to that big mega church, that youth group, a girl in my Sunday school class was homeschooled. Um, Mm -hmm. That is when I think we we were 13, maybe that's when I decided I'm going to homeschool my kids someday because I just thought that was the most awesome thing to not have to go to public school prison was, you know, because as for a creative in a, in a concrete room with white walls with fluorescent lights buzzing all day, that was just agony to me. So, um, but her house, she had like, just, there was like learning everywhere and like, it was just curiosity driven. So, um, so I was friends with her all through growing up and then she went on to become a midwife so i knew that it was a thing um Mm -hmm. but i didn't know anything about it and then when i got married and and got pregnant um we had no medical insurance and so the only thing i knew was that i didn't want to go to the big city hospital where the the, public um, hospital yeah like the medicaid hospital because it just scared me it was in a high crime area and i was really young and i had so naive and didn't have any idea and so i just knew that I didn't feel good about having my baby there, but I didn't really know what else to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I called her and she was apprenticing with um, a midwife that was in St. Augustine. Um, and that woman is like, she taught me how to be a mother. Like she, <laughs> she had to teach me that this was the year that McDonald's first came out with monopoly. And so I was eating McDonald's um, big value meal things so I could get my monopoly points every day. <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise not eating. Like I didn't have any idea how to even take care of take myself. Take care of yourself. So she yeah. gave me like our first visit, she gave me an armful of books. I read Spiritual Midwifery and Sheila Kitzinger, uh is it I still have it on the shelf somewhere, the complete book of childbirth. Um mm-hmm. and so I just kinda got an education on what was happening, what my body needed, um, the different ways to have babies. Spiritual midwifery is awesome in that it is so off the beaten track. It's these hippies. Are you familiar with the book? I read a bu- that doesn't sound familiar to me. I read a bunch of books okay, when I was so Ina pregnant. Gaskin, which is like this awesome yes, Ina May. Yes. So yeah. So she that was how she got started in midwifery. They took a hippie bus from California to Tennessee, and along the way they had their commune or whatever. Exactly, right. Exactly. Right. So spiritual midwifery is the stories of those midwives and that group and their births and like mm-hmm. they got into some psychedelics and they you know were growing all their own food and they were doing the the, the true hippie thing. Um, but what I loved about it was it really broke my paradigm. 
all, all I'd had been exposed to was women on their backs on TV screaming hysterically. I right. didn't, had no idea what real childbirth was like. So to see like or to read about those other experiences gave me at least two extremes to find a middle ground. Um, and yeah, so Tina definitely was the middle ground. She's like the midwife in um, in St. Augustine. She was like one of the few in the area. So she was catching all the babies. Yeah. And um, But I lived um, all the way on the other side of Jackson, which was like an hour and a half away from her. So, and Paige was like somewhere in the middle. Paige was the friend that I grew up with. Um, so Paige was in the middle and um, I had this like week of kind of fake labor kind of stuff, you know, didn't really know what's labor going to feel like. You have no idea. Um, and then I bought a set of bed sheets and I didn't wash them. I put them on the bed. They were blue and the dye made my entire body break out in this full body rash two no. days before he was born. So I'm like miserable. It's March. It's hot. And they're thinking you're not really in labor. You're just complaining about it. You know, cause I'm like, mm -hmm. it's just the biggest deal. Everything I'm dramatic and <laughs> everything's the biggest deal. So, um, they come and they check me and they tell me you're not, um, you're not, you're, you're active. Your body, your body's getting ready for labor, but you're not actually in labor. And, um, Two hours later, I was puking, and I had him like two hours after that, and uh, he was born at 3.20 in the afternoon on a Wednesday with the sunshine pouring in. It was so oh. beautiful. And it was oh so fast goodness. and easy, and I put my hands under him. That's how I found out he was a oh, boy. Stop I, it. Fast and easy. It was so easy. gorgeous. <laughs> Didn't you have fast births, too? No. Well, um, I don't know if they were fast. But I would never call it easy. No. no. Well, so, like, it was, Andrew's birth was easy only because I had no idea what birth was going to feel like. So every right. time I hit a place in it, it was over. And and then the next one was upon me. And I didn't know anything about that one either. So And, okay. and then it just went rapid. His birth, All my yeah. births have been super different. My second birth right. was 28 hours long. So they're definitely all different. But um, Right. But his was just, I mean, I think my naivety really served me in that birth because I was surrounded by really loving, caretaking people and um, their quality of care was so high and their nurturing was yeah. so high. And I was um, I was really too young and innocent to know any better. So yeah. he just popped out and, and changed my life and I just loved falling in love with him and he's in the Navy now, so... <laughs> But, oh my but when I think of him, I go back to the like day after he was born and I'm laying in my bed at home in my nice, sweet apartment and the sun's coming in and I'm just falling in love with my little baby. I mean, I couldn't mm -hmm. ask for a better start to motherhood. I had That's soft amazing. diapers delivered to the house. They always came like this big bag of soft quilted soft diapers. And, right. Um, and we just... Look at you. We just got God. going. <laughs> it was just good. You didn't... Uh... Like, I know, so for my older son, we went to a place, right? So we went to a birth center, and it was a little, I think what happened there was I was trying to avoid the pain so much that mm. I, like, stopped moving around, mm -hmm. and to the point that he kind of got stuck. So at the end, it was a bit of an emergency. Right. It, it was it was a bit of a problem. I stayed at the place, but... um Anyway, worked out, you know, I was healthy, he was healthy. And then the, the deal with those birth centers is they're not hospitals, so you can't stay. So four hours later, you got to go home. Oh, boy. So 
Uh, so it's like two thirty in the morning. We gotta go home. Oh. And uh, <laughs> and my, you know, and my bed's all wet because, uh, or my bed, like my sheets are are like not on the bed because uh, my water broke in bed. And you know, it's like oh. you two thirty, two thirty in the morning. You just had a baby. You don't know what. Like it's it's like that feeling of uh, how, why did they let me come right. home with this baby? Right. Like who am I? <laughs> who am I to take care of this thing? You know, and it's like we're kind of like, well, are we really supposed to put it over there? You know, like in the co sleeper, which seemed like far, away. you know, miles away. I'm like, really? Are we supposed? But what? And this and oh, oh my god, just the so um, much. the anxiety, yeah. you know, of it all. And uh, they really convinced me to do the home birth for the second baby, mostly because of that four-hour deal. Because mm-hmm. my midwife, she could do it. My I had a new midwife. Mm-hmm. She's like, I can do it at the birth center or I can do it at home. And mm-hmm. honestly, it's just more convenient at home because so is. she's like, you don't have to put a four-hour-old baby in a car seat. Right. And I was like, oh, that that alone, yeah. you know. Right. And uh, – I just didn't want to like make a mess at home, and mm-hmm. you know what I right. mean. Like, I, I know, I know. Like, I had both for my second birth because I had planned a home birth and I labored at home for twenty-one hours, but I was yeah. uptight and anxious and yeah. um, couldn't couldn't fully dilate. So we got I got to seven, no, I got to four centimeters, and she manually dilated me a little bit, you know, to get mm-hmm. going, and then I closed back up, and so I was so tired, and so yeah. we went. She's like, "Let's just go to the hospital, you know, get some pitocin, and we'll." Go ahead and have a oh, hospital birth. Uh-huh. And so I went through all the feelings of like, I failed at my home birth, you know, all mm-hmm. that. Get in the car. My daughter was almost born on the bridge because um, mm-hmm. she decided to <laughs> kick right in. Um, so we were pretty much had her in the hallway at the hospital oh and then left uh, like nine hours later, like whatever, whatever where the window was where you whatever like, the, yeah, get out of like there. Whatever that you can finally leave. Yeah. yeah. It's like quit poking at us. And um, my house by the, was set up for home birth. So it was still, it was like, there's so much setup, you know, that goes into the care and nurturing for the after effect. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that one wasn't bad. Clara, of course, was born in the hospital, which was very um, traumatic. I had a doctor who was a surgeon who, He's probably a really great surgeon, but he was a really awful um, physician for any kind of bedside manner with someone who was right. going to have a normal b- delivery. And I was insistent on having as natural a delivery as possible because there wasn't anything wrong with me. I needed to be right. in the right place for her, but I, I didn't need um, surgery or anything, you know, dramatic done to me. So um, I was always campaigning for like, okay, what can I do naturally? And they were so against that. They really... Um, yeah. They attacked midwifery and said that I had received substandard care. And, you know, at the same time, they're giving me like five minutes of their time. Their nurses are doing all of the vital checks. I'm in and out of there in 20 minutes, as opposed to where my midwife appointments would be like an hour of, you know, what else is going on in your life? How are you eating? How are you sleeping? All that support. Um, And I, you know, shelved it because Clara needed the support that she needed. So we had to be at the level three NICU and that's just, that was the way it was. But, um, my body kicked in again fast and my doctor said um, he had this, he had somewhere he had to be at three o'clock. I don't know. He broke my water. Hurry up. I have exactly. to go. He, exactly. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was more cruel than that. He, I, oh, I, um, I went in for a regular check to, um, for blood pressure and stuff. And um, I guess I got, I, I can't remember what happened. I got faint or something. Anyway, they decided to induce that day. It was a week before my due date. And so he broke my water and I start laboring 
And um, two hours in, I had this feeling like she's going to be here soon, but I hadn't mm-hmm. dilated fully yet. So there, that, that was just mother's intuition. You couldn't, yeah, you couldn't prove it. He goes, he goes, yeah, well, if you do, you're going to have this baby on your own because I have somewhere to be at three o'clock. So he left. And not five minutes later, her head was coming down. So mm-hmm. the nurse freaks out. She's like, oh, my God, you're, this baby's being born right now. Nurse knows this is a medically sensitive baby. I'm supposed to be in the OR. I'm in mm-hmm. my room. So she puts up the sides to those beds, you know, with the wheels on them. Mm-hmm. And you can hardly swing those around. Like, <laughs> they're really cumbersome. They take a couple people to really move. She's barreling down the hallway. <laughs> And slams into the door of the no. OR. She's calling for help. My baby comes out with the force of the door. And Stop. They whisk her away. I'm in the oh. OR. They, I like reach down for her. I think I'm going to lift her to me. You know, like right. I'm at least going to, you know, see her. They just take her, you know, whisk her away to ICU. <clears throat> take me back to my room. And I didn't know for two hours if she was dead or alive. They would not, they, they were assessing her. Oh so then they come in and they tell us like the full weight of all of her defects. And, mm-hmm. um, and so we go through that. So whenever I told you Clara's story, so I'll skip over to the next birth. Um, Wheaton, Wheaton was all about, um, healing. I wanted to heal from all of it. I wanted to heal. I wanted to have him before I started hitting anniversaries of Clara's death. That was big. So I wanted to be pregnant. My, you know, that oh. empty arm syndrome is so real in my like arms. Right away. Ached. You wanted like, to be pregnant uh, I wanted, right away. No, no, no. I waited. I waited. I got pregnant. She died in May and I was pregnant the next January. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, so he was born at home in a water tub with Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World. And he opened his eyes under the water and he's got these enormous blue eyes. I don't know if you've seen a picture of him, but he's got huge blue eyes. And he looked yeah. at me under the water and it was like. So, so many things healed in that moment. Like I had caught him myself in the water. So that was just really empowering and he was healthy and beautiful. And, um, and then a few years later I had Rowan in the water again, but that was four hours of pushing a nine and a half pound baby out. He's been stubborn since before he was born. So yeah, that was, it was harder. It was still good water birth, but it was, uh, not as easy as his first brother, you know, where it was like right. done, done in a few hours. Your easiest one was your first one. Totally. Totally. My last baby was my biggest baby. So he was yeah. nine and a half. The first baby was eight fourteen. The okay. girls were in like the high sevens, eight and uh, Wheaton was eight pounds. So I, um, yeah, my first baby, he was uh, a week and a half early, which is still within the yeah, normal sure. window. But he was like six pounds, four ounces. And then my second baby was a week and a half late. Like we were getting to the point where they're like, if you don't have this baby, you're going to have to have the baby in the hospital. And it Mm. was, you know, every day, like trying new new tricks. (laughs) And um, yeah, he was nine pounds. He was a big baby. So it was like the first baby was like all the all the little newborn clothes. They were so big on him. And then so I wanted to have I got extra little clothes for the second time and then of course no he he's was, huge you know he was he's yeah, huge when they're over chubby. nine they just look like three month olds they're just enormous yeah. like this but is i a giant found baby. it hurt the same yeah. i i didn't yeah. find you know people talk about <laughs> oh big bits this is the same it's, the same. it's awful You're still, I- <laughs> like delivering a watermelon it's still it's still there the thing with water birth the only thing that did that differently was that it takes the pressure off your body so you still have the pain but you don't have the pain plus right. the pressure 
so I did notice a big difference in that. But water also accelerates things to a to a large right. extent. So um, when you get in, you like initially sigh, and then you're in labor. Like it See, transition. I couldn't comes. feel it in the water. I couldn't feel it, and I would get on the bed, and I couldn't feel it. And finally, she brought a birthing stool. And have you seen these? Yes. It's like a horseshoe. It's like sitting on a toilet. You know, Uh it's like a chair with no seat with just the border. And it's very intense. You don't want to be there because it's just all the gravity. Uh But I mean. Yeah. Brings that baby down. It works. Yeah. And that was it. And and it was just super. My second one, I did the hypnobirthing because uh, for my first son, I felt like I didn't have the control that I Mm-hmm. imagined that I would have mm-hmm. and I wanted to feel more in control mm-hmm. and so I just uh I just bought the book and I listened to the things it was just kind of like meditating and and whatever and I was able to keep pretty chill it was like from 9 p.m to like 1 a.m my my two-year-old was sleeping in the in his room we're like god oh, you know let's great. hope he stays asleep like the whole time we got the baby monitor there like he start, you know he barely ever had a night where he slept all night oh wow so we were quiet? like god please <laughs> please don't come out please don't come out and uh but after about 1 a.m., that's where I just couldn't kind of keep quiet anymore. And he was mm-hmm. born at 3.30, more or less. And um, and he slept through the whole thing. That's wonderful. And at 7.30, we got him up to go to, like, preschool. Or, you know, we'd started him in, like, three hours a day just so that mm-hmm. I could have a few. Yeah. It was like he woke up. He met his new brother, oh. got his little uniform on, and went to school for a couple so hours. You know? My husband didn't sleep for two days because wow. he was, you know, because yeah. you're with, you got to be with the, the the other kid. Right. You know? Right. It's hard. Um, that part's hard. But, um, yeah. Oh, well, uh, that's fun. <laughs> that's. I know we don't usually get to dish about childbirth I know. this old and stuff. And now you're, see, you started so young. I feel like I, I. Yeah, I think you're only like three years older than me, mm-hmm. but I feel like you've lived an entire life yes. more yes. than I have. I was already an old soul, and then I had all this life experience with getting my kids done young, um, right. which has it's like a mixed bag. It comes up a lot right now because um, my youngest is 14, so and my the Wheaton is getting ready to graduate this year, so my nest is rapidly emptying, mm-hmm. and um. And I feel like, well, I'm young. I have, I have a whole career ahead of me. I have a whole. I can do whatever I want. Forty four is not old. I feel like I can right. do anything. And so they're starting. My my two that are married. Um, my daughter doesn't want to have kids for like ten <laughs> years. But my son right. is like jonesing for babies. He's like, I can't wait to be a father. And I'm like, honey, you're young. You you wait, you wait. And then every right. time I say it, he goes, but mom, you didn't. And look at you. And I'm like, well, he has a point there. There is like an mm-hmm. ease to it when you're young. Your body yeah. can do it better. He's got, you know, good benefits through the military that are, you know, adequate for families. And mm-hmm. um, and and so I can't like, well, maybe it's the best thing, you know. And he's like, his whole reason is that he wants to, um, he wants his kids to be with his great grandparents, with their great grandparents. Um, my parents are still young too because they had their kids in their twenties. Right. So, so How old are your parents? They're in their sixties. So if that's he had, amazing. Yes, and so if he had babies. Their, his children would know their great grandparents closely, so yeah. and he wants that. So that I I see them having. I'll I'll be a grandmother soon, not soon soon, oh but probably in the next five. And uh and and I think so. I think I think it's 
fine. You know, you, I, one of my sayings is that you can do it all. You can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. Right. I could not have had, I could not, anything that I do right now, my job, my creativity, all of that, I could not have done with little children. And I don't think I would have been as active a parent if I had them at this age, which I mean, you really, I'm past, you know, 44, you don't need to be having You get babies, tired. But, but yeah, I mean, your body is just, it was yeah. way different from my first baby to my fifth baby. My body, my, my stamina, all of that was very different. Um, yeah. And, but although I would have been a more evolved parent and more like, there's so much to the 40s mindset that I would have loved to bring to young babyhood, but you know. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is, you know. They're you, amazing, you, so. You get what, you know, your life is what it, what what it is, and there's no right, right. or wrong or. Um, oh, it's so interesting you say that. There's no right or wrong. This, yesterday, I was talking to my writing coach, and she said the same thing in regards to, um, like, uh, an outline, a plot treatment we were working on. She's like, let's let's stay away from the right or wrong. You know, you, it is what it's going to be. And right. I'm just noting that that came up two days in a row in two different settings. Ooh. Maybe I'm supposed to hear that. <laughs> it's funny you said old, that you're an old soul because it's literally in my notes here. Like, I <laughs> like that you're an old soul. You're an old soul. And I um, it was really interesting because I basically spent, like, one or two days just, like, reading everything you have online. Like, I read, oh, that's like, funny. so much of your blog. and Did you find my old one in your- on the Internet Archive? No, so no, that, I didn't. The one about uh, that you wrote when you were in Tennessee. Yes, it was. It was called "Living Deliberately," and it, um, I stopped paying for hosting on it after the divorce because it was a lifestyle blog, and it was when blogging was brand new. And um, I just got in at a good time, and I took I took the position of like blogging about all the things that we were doing in Tennessee, and uh, book reviews, and movie reviews, and, and anecdotes on parenting, and. And all of that, and it was popular for um, mm-hmm. because blogs were new and popular. Um, and then I blogged about um, I did two book reviews um, from Oprah's book club, and one mm-hmm. of them was a negative book review. And there was not a lot of negative book reviews for anything Oprah at the time, so <laughs> it got really good Google results, which was oh, like okay. my introduction into search words and SEO and all that. And um, did you get some some haters on the comments? Oh, or I did. Anything? Well, so like, I was getting eighty thousand hits a week, and that's good for you. That's a lot. Ten years ago, it's still a yes. lot today. I was blogging um, at that time as well. I'll talk about <laughs> it. But um, yeah, yeah. Me and the I like was blog buddies with the Pioneer Woman, and okay, this was when her site was brand new too. And sometimes I look at her and I'm like, bitch, I could have been that way. It could have been my gig, but you know, not really because life happened and her life was probably a lot healthier and <laughs> more authentic at the time. But, um, but so it was doing well. Um, and then after the divorce, there was just so much baggage there that I stopped paying for hosting on it. And I thought that right. it went away because I thought I have the database and it's not online. There's this thing called the internet archive and it's a time the machine. The way back machine. And yes, yeah. that thing, the way back machine. And um, it's there. It's not all of it is there, but enough <laughs> right. of it is there to where I'm like, oh my god! It's anyway. It's I was it's shocked. Crazy. It's almost scary um, because there's some stuff that you're maybe you had online that you're like, well, I'd like to delete that forever. Right. But right, there is no delete. <laughs> it's same thing happened with Facebook. I um I thought when you delete stuff there, you delete stuff. No, if you ask them for your record, they can they can send you your entire file of everything you've ever done on Facebook, oh my God. and everything is there, even the messages that you deleted in Messenger. 
long mm-hmm. time ago. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. nothing online goes away. It was like a huge revelation to me that, right. oh, no, no, we nothing goes away. Nothing. It's all it all can come back at the most um, unsuspecting times. You know, I don't have any big secrets out there, but. I like having control over my my yeah, footprint. Yeah, and I you know, and times change, and especially now, like you know, it's like mm-hmm. whatever may maybe would have uh, passed as fine a few years ago is now maybe totally inappropriate, and, and maybe and you don't want stuff taken out of context. I can't think of anything specific that that would relate to to me, but like, yeah, you yeah. you wanna maybe like the old stuff maybe doesn't represent who you are now, so you don't. Oh, completely. Want it there anymore. Ten years ago, I was a conservative Christian in a cult, um, <laughs> and I escaped a, a domestic violence marriage oh my with my children in the middle of the night and went in hiding. That was who I was ten years ago. My life isn't anything like that now. I'm liberal. I My kids right. are raised. I'm not affiliated with that religion anymore. It Everything's different. I'm married to husband 2.0, who is, by design, the complete polar opposite of his predecessor. So right. it's... It's just a completely different life. My biggest online lesson, as it po- you know, was with the time travel thing goes, is that we were new to the internet when it was just being born, and so we had mm-hmm. to kind of learn as we went. And I had no idea in the beginning that facial recognition software was going to be a thing. But my children have been like, "Whoa, mom! We wish you had not put us online so much as kids." We didn't know that at the time. And now, you know, like you don't see people posting people. Their teenagers are like not on Facebook. Mm-hmm. People are a lot more careful about it. But my kids in particular did not want that exposure. They didn't want to be fodder for a blog. Um, and I I had to come to that awareness through that process. Um, right. And, I, and so I don't want that record online because it's not just my life. This comes up with my memoir. It's not just your too. story. It's not just yeah. my story. It's theirs too. Um, I have a whopper of a story to tell from that situation. And I think I'm going to fictionalize it because there's no way, like there's still like, there's going to be a few intimates that understand if they read it, they're who, who, who is who and what is what, but the majority of the people won't. If I try to write it as memoir, I'm violating way too much about a life right. that's not just mine. So I'm thankful for that part. Cause I, it's just a new awareness we have. And to how do you, how do you go about that? Because a lot of a lot of what I want to write is based on real experiences and mm-hmm. stuff, and then it, and then I go and I try and change it to a point, and it's it's that process is hard, right? right like right, right. like what do you change? Do you do you have a method of how you're gonna fictionalize? So it's very much um, an evolving process, and there's like little. I'll just be going along. I've always got this running in the background for about maybe five years, this has been in the background of, of what I want to do. And I want to tell this story because it's what I know. I want to tell this story because it's incredibly relevant. Um, fundamentalism in America is impacting our society in some big ways. And a lot of Americans are just blind to what's right under their nose. They would not guess that this kind of, um, they think this is all Muslim with burqas. They don't realize that women in denim jumpers right in front of their faces are in the same kind of fundamental sex and these things are happening. And I want to tell this story. I think it's really relevant. Um, but so as I, as I have this in my background, I'm thinking, okay, so like conventional writing wisdom is to write what you know. Um, you can also like, that doesn't really work when you're doing fantasy and stuff, but you'll find like when you're writing fiction, 
your own experiences and biases will weave into the storylines. Um, and I was listening to Glennon Doyle. Um, and she said, I hope I'm going to saying you can't just tell your story. You have to think of how it applies to everyone. You have to get to a place. Okay. When she wrote Love Warrior, she started with her story, but then she waited until she got to a place with each aspect where it related to someone else. Now, it is also possible I'm mixing her up with Rachel Hollis with Girl, Wash Your Face, because I just read that. And I think both of them were kind of saying the same thing in this regard. Like, you need to have, when you're writing a personal story like that, it needs to be brought back around to where how anybody can either relate to it or they've had a similar experience. They could see themselves making a similar choice. Okay. Um, but I wasn't satisfied with memoir because what I come down to is that, um, besides the fact that it's not just my story, it's also like, why would anyone care? I'm like, my my demographic right now as a suburban white American mother is simply not the voice that needs to be the loudest right now in that category. That there are other stories and other narratives that need to emerge. My story um, has probably been done before and done better and and doesn't feel like it fits in memoir category at all. So then this week, I got this very clear vision of... Um, <laughs> of how to make this a fictional story with a character okay. and how to take all those experiences and make them amalgamations of a plot instead of making, instead of making it so identifiable who did what and what role and my story, I can take several plot lines, several narratives rather, and weave them together and create nice. this cast of characters and paint the picture of what's happening on a broad scale without making it a personal story of any one person. So um, I hope that sounds clear. That's that's yeah. um, that's what I'm going to do. I, I have the protagonist. I know what happens to her. I know who's in her life. I know what the cast of characters is. And, um, it, and it's ready for writing after I finish my current um, work in progress. So you're, you're writing so many things. I, so yeah. And I also have a screenplay underway. And so, you know, um, pulp writers, pulp fiction, um, pulp fiction speed. yeah so not the movie the the method of writing the speed of writing these people would do between four no. and 30 novels in a year i've been reading about this this week so that speed they don't spend right? a ton of time rewriting they're storytellers they purge these stories out then they go through an editing process and then with an editor as well um but as soon as they finish one they get started on the second one and they just go okay. and they're writing um, about anywhere from 800 words to 4,000 words a day. Um, so you start out with your fresh writing and then you work into the rewriting from the previous day when you finish that. And you just keep these projects rolling and you end up becoming a very prolific writer. So those writers aren't going after, you know, great literary craft. They want, they want fast. This was like all the Westerns were written this way. Um, the Star Trek series, you know, those, those okay. serial type, type things, romance novels. Um, and so... I was researching that was this week because I was trying to take some of the aspects of pulp writing speed and apply it to the more um, literary craft uh, focus I want to have on my projects. I definitely don't want even, I'm not interested in writing four a year. I wouldn't mind finishing one or two a year. Um, but those speed techniques can be crossed over. So, Anyway, I'm just you, that you've got a lot going. You've got a lot in the pipeline in the pipeline right and, now. Um, and that's empowered by things like the Pulp Fiction, but also Deep Work was um, a life changing game changer book for me this summer. 
um, that changed my entire work process um, because I also work full time in homeschool, Rowan. So um, they're very full days. Right. Um, but for the first time, I don't have any surrounding anxiety around it. I feel like I am just clicking along, getting my stuff mm-hmm. done, doing the things that I need to do. Now, it helps that there's a lot of parallel because my full time job is with a writing company that is a homeschooling company. Um, my son, obviously homeschooling, there's overlap in the kinds of things that we do, or at least where my thought process is at the time. And then mm-hmm. the homeschooling company that teaches writing, I'm a writer. So they're, they're like all, my attention isn't like on three radically different things. They, they, sure. kind of, they kind of jive. And so what's your writing process right now? When are you writing? Mm-hmm. How are you doing it? Like, is it, are you using a pen and paper? Are you using computer? Like all that. I'm so excited. Um, okay. So, <laughs> cause I would have answered this question completely differently four months ago. And now it's like, ah, so you know how Elizabeth Gilbert says you have to write farmer's hours. Like she, and she shuts off her social life and everything when she gets down and dirty into the manuscript time. And okay. I envied that of like, that's how real writers are doing it. They're like, turning everything else off and they're focusing and they're they're committed to the time and i was always thwarted by my lifestyle by my demands of my family by um i had some health issues um i like sleep i'm not a night owl or an early bird i like to sleep um so (laughs) um i I could never quite get that going and then i read deep work uh by cal newport and it was the biggest light bulb on how to maximize your work sessions, be unavailable to everything else for certain amounts of time. Um, You know, he's coming at it from a position where he has to write a certain number of academic papers per year for his tenure, but he also has to teach full time and he has a family with a little boy. So those are three very demanding things. um, And deep work is how he gets it done. So he wrote the book and I'm like, yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, Because normal time management doesn't really apply to the creatives because it's so linear and like assumes you're not going to have a million distractions and you know, you're not multitasking the creatives. I know we're all multitasking. So how do we become efficient monsters of productivity? Um, Deep work helped me do that. So my writing process now I get up at five. um, I have my coffee. I know, I know until this summer I could never write. I read this and your blog, I, I saw the time and I'm like, I know that's what I need to do, but I have zero. Okay, but go ahead. I could not have. It's so you weird. Get up. Before you get up this summer, I, I would have gotten up early and <laughs> stared like, uh, what day is it? Uh, 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 for like three hours, I wouldn't have gotten nothing done. Nothing. Right. And then I would have ended up on Facebook and just, you know, scrolled mm-hmm. it away. Um, but, oh, so I should I should also say this. Around that same time, I started this new anxiety medication, which I tell all my female friends about. I don't know if men take it. My doctor is a woman, and she gave it to me as a woman. Um, mm-hmm. she, it's called Busaprone, or Bus, Busip, something. Busaprone um, is what I call it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just anxiety. It does not treat any depression. It's not um, an S. What's the other one? S SSR? No, not SSRIs. It's a uh, it's not an antidepressant. It's an anti-anxiety. Right. It's just okay. anti-anxiety. And so it doesn't even have like an, you can't take it like a chill pill. It's got to be something that you kind of just maintain. So okay. I take it at eight and four. And for some reason that really impacted my sleep. So now I get really qualitative sleep and mm-hmm. my general anxiety has been treated. 
Um, and so, and I wake up at five, it's usually naturally, and I'm completely clear-minded. I also mm-hmm. really tapped into um, something I read from Rachel Hollis, which was decide what you want most, not what you want right now. So usually what I want right now is to sleep more. But what I want most is to be award-winning novelist, fiction writer, and screenplay writer. That's what I want most. That's going to mean I have to get my ass out of bed because you can't even call yourself a writer if you're not writing. I have right. to write. And so what would happen before is I would, I would always treat writing like it was my reward if I'd gotten all my other work done. Mm. And so I would not always get to it. And by then you're dead. Yeah. And so it doesn't always happen. And then I would feel like this weight on my chest of you're not going to realize your potential or your dreams because you can't even make time for it. So then that would feed the anxiety. So it was a really big game changer when I, all these strategies came into um, place at the same time. And I started getting up at five and I write for 90 undisturbed minutes on a project that I've laid out the night before. Um, And that's my work in progress right now, which is a young adult urban fantasy novel. Um, and so I write for that on 90 minutes. Then I write, I work on a work project for another 90 minutes. Then I get up and I do, um, like 45 minutes of shallow work, which is usually, uh, family type stuff and, uh, organization. Um, and then I just continue in deep work cycles for the rest of the day. They're usually shorter, like 30 minutes, deep work, 30 minutes, shallow, that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and rotate. So it's on my Mac. I use, um, just drive documents when I'm like doing outlines and stuff. I use Scrivener when I get into the manuscript writing. Um, I love Blackwing's pencils. Um, William what Foster. is it? It's a Blackwing pencil. You see that? Oh, okay. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Ones? yeah, no, I see it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, a lot of writers wrote with these. I want to say it was William Faulkner or Ernest Hemingway. Probably Hemingway. Um, oh, that's interesting. We used to write with these exclusively and you press, you press a little bit for a nice dark lead. Um, mm. I like to hold these and think writerly thoughts with these pencils in my hand, but <laughs> I have to think type. Think writerly thoughts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have to type if I'm writing. So, um, so that is I it because it you can't computer. write. I find sometimes that I can't write as fast as I think, mm-hmm. but I could type exactly. almost as fast as I can think. Exactly. That's why um, I signed my kid up. I like writing though. That. I think you've seen, like, anytime we have a call or anything, I mm-hmm. always do my notes. I don't yeah. really read them later. I mean, maybe immediately later when I need to. You That's know what funny. I mean? But I'll fill up a whole notebook, and then it's basically garbage at the end. But yeah. I need to go through the process of writing. And the handwriting is horrible. Right. Like, it's no one else could read it. It's yeah. just, like, big, you know, scribbly strokes. But uh-huh. I'm same, And I've got them post-it notes all over my desk and I'll go back and sometimes like when I have to clean I'll look it up and I'm like oh I I don't I never even looked back at this but I had to write it at the time I think um, same thing happens if I'm driving a car if if I'm the driver I can always find my way back and I think that's the same brain skill your brain is active I have to write it and then once I write it and I see it I'll remember it but if I don't write it I won't so yeah yeah yeah, yeah I'm the same. I like to see. see. I like to see things written. Like if you can, if you, I, I don't know. I can picture like if I read something, I'll, I'm like it was at the bottom of the right side of the page. Like I right, can, right? Kind of, you know, I can't read the page, but I know where it where was. You, it. you know, yeah. And um, or like if I, I'm terrible, like if you meet someone at a party and, and you know, 
oh, okay, your name's Susan, okay, you know, and you repeat, yeah. no, I can't, can't no, do but that. maybe if yeah. I read the name tag, you mm-hmm. know, I used to say if I was queen of the world, I'd make everyone wear name tags, because That's I feel so awesome. like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like, oh, yes, you get it, I says, I'm the same way, I'm the same way, I cannot, oral, oral, uh, instruction, information, it can come at me a hundred times, and I won't retain it, but if I can see right. it, I'm fine. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, somewhere you wrote that being a writer is second to your children. Like that's how – or writing is second to your children. Like that's yeah. how important it is. Yeah. How long has it been like that? Like what, at what point in your life did writing become – like you said, you've got this big mm-hmm. goal. Mm-hmm. No, I when think, did that start? I think they all – so I was a precocious kid. Um I, I grew up wild, um, pretty untamed in the woods, very, very feral. Um, not a lot of supervision happening in my 80s childhood, um, which I am actually eternally grateful for. But now I'm like kind of as a mom horrified. But, you know, my parents were young, too, and they were doing it was the best different. they could. It was, it was different. different. There was then. no internet and there was no like I, I had a lot of free roaming time. I was also um, I just read really early. I don't remember learning how to read. Um I remember being three years old and reading and and testing for preschool and stuff. So I have memories of that time when I'm about three or four and I had two very profound um, dreams and I've carried them with me always, always. I wanted five kids and I want to write. I want five kids and I want to write. So I've had my five and I've raised them and I've devoted myself to them for that 20 years. But now I'm getting very, very serious about this next phase and it's the perfect time because there aren't grandkids yet. Those Babies are raised and they don't need me the same way they did. In fact, what they need from me most is to go be fulfilled and back off because they need their time to separate and they make space to, yeah. and do things. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll go crazy if I don't have something. So this is working out perfectly because I needed a big project and it's, it gets to be me now. I get to um, work on my vision board and, and my, my writing. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a, those are two constants. I'm a very unhappy, miserable person if I can't write. I'm constantly writing in my head, and um, those kids are my dream come true. So, I mean, I'll, they're, yeah. sure, all the other things that you're supposed to say you value, uh, I do, <laughs> but like I know. But it's like, a big, yeah, it's a big piece. Yeah, those are my and, essentials. And so you've got all these works in progress, and you have a how do you call it? Is it like a book coach or an? So What's yeah, my writing coach was my gift writing to myself coach, this year. Yeah, so I didn't go to college. I don't know if you picked up in that narrative. I never went to college. And I have the career that I have because thank God the internet came into being and thank God I had a knack for search engine optimization and writing for the internet and blogging and I just have gotten lucky. You taught yourself over mm-hmm. and over again. Yeah, I met the right people. Yeah. I worked for a Tony Robbins company for 5 years that was lucrative and I I've just I've worked, I've done the right thing. I've been blessed and lucky to do those things, but I haven't gone to college. So um, the only time it really bugs me uh, is because I really wanted an MFA in creative writing. And there's, Mm -hmm. I, you know, my, my writing coach now tells me, she's like, you've done so much craft study. You've probably homeschooled yourself right through one, but I do covet like the classroom experience with writing the feedback um, and so beta readers can give a little, but they're not skilled. They just, you know, can give you a general reader impression and a paid editor can fix your writing, but they can't really coach you in how to make it better from the beginning. Um, so I hired her as 
my midwife into my writing career. That's exactly how I looked at it. Like I needed to be taught how to be a mother. I'm going to need how to be taught how to do this. And I'd spent five years, seven drafts on my first novel alone, and it still wasn't coming together. I knew there was big holes. And I hired an editor last year who was very good. She gave me really good feedback, uh, really harsh feedback, critical, but Mm -hmm. it was very helpful. I like like to be edited, and I like that feedback because it makes you better. What she said was right. The way she said it made me feel shitty. So I was like, I don't want to pay to feel like crap. I just want to make my crap better. Right, that's not part of this. Right. So, um, so that was a nice learning experience of, okay, well, maybe the first time's not a charm. I need to, you know, try again. And, um, and so I did find my writing coach, this one, and, uh, she's, she is doing exactly what I was hoping. She is midwifing me into a writer. And so we're working on plot treatments and it's almost ready for the first draft. I think I'm going to start the actual manuscript October 1st and I should be done if I do a word count of about 2,000 words a day for 40 days. I should have 80,000 words. I should be done by Christmas with the okay. first draft. And then I can start the second one, which is the story that I'm going to do with that's the cre- the, the fictional mm-hmm. memoir thing. Um, I can start that in January while the other one is under the editing process. Um, and then the screenplay I'm working on, I'm just going to kind of pepper in in between there because I want to enter that in a contest that a lot of the screenwriting contests kind of hover around the September, October mark. So I'm hoping that with some concerted effort next year, um, I'll have my TV pilot. Got it all mapped out, Tia. So that happened yesterday. Okay, so this is another thing. Reverse engineering your goals. So I have always done vision boards and goal lists. I'm really good at setting a goal, making like taking a dream, making it a goal, and making it happen. But that there's a million steps in between there. So um, another thing that um, Rachel Hollis talks a lot about is um, writing down your 10 hairy, bodacious, crazy goals the things that make you like when you put them on paper, you're a little embarrassed because who the hell are you to think that you can do that? <laughs> that that kind of a goal. Write it down and then break it down to like what what have to happen in order for that to be true. You write it in the past tense, like it already happened. So oh, I'm okay. already a New York Times bestselling author, and this is what I did to get there. Okay, so then when you're thinking what I did to to get there, you just keep breaking it down and breaking it down and breaking it down until you get to today. What do I have to do today? Well, so I had to have deadlines and I have to have a workflow and I have to have, I have to know, like, is it even realistic to think I'm going to have a manuscript next year? It takes a couple years to get books published. If, if everything goes right and perfect and you get your agent and you get your publisher and it goes through that whole process of cover design and printing and all that, that takes a couple years. So what can, what has to happen for that even to be viable? Um, mm-hmm. so I reverse engineered everything yesterday and, um, wow, wow. <laughs> it's, it's a plan. It's like the freaking yeah. map. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. I just want to like tell Have everybody. you, <laughs> have you tried to get an agent before? Like as you were writing your other books or were you always waiting until you felt ready and. Years ago, before Andrew was born, I went on a little, um, I was trying to write and illustrate children's books. And um, I had, I went through a little of it then. I haven't done any of that since. Mostly because I know I don't have in hand what they need. A first time author is going to need to have more than a proposal. You have to have a finished manuscript and you should probably have a couple of works in place because they want to see, well, what else can we publish of yours? Right. You know, how valuable are you to us as a a 
product brand, you know, like they want to know that this is worth their time. So I don't have that stuff yet. So part of reverse engineering was like, okay, what do I need to have to have that packet? Um, I assume that my coach will help me through that next phase with her connections. Um, Mm -hmm. But maybe not. She might just have, she might just know what comes next, um, which I probably have already learned, um, but haven't done any, haven't put any feet to the pavement on that yet. Um, Yeah. I have a friend who, an agent approached her just because she was sending out so much energy into the universe of what she was producing. And the agents are also looking for talent. And so I kind of like hope that that's what comes my way because I know I'm being really vocal about it on social media. That's the thing, man. They want people that'll sell their own books. They look at the social Mm -hmm. media now. They look at the follower count and then it becomes a whole nother, right? You have to be your own PR as well as your... Exactly. You're probably going to do most of your own PR and marketing. Those budgets Mm -hmm. just aren't what they used to be. It's not like the... um, the thing that we fantasized about, you know, like we'll be rock star writers. <laughs> sure, there's a certain geeky writer celebrity status that might happen at a book club fair thing, but you know, it's not like those are the the big budget <laughs> things. Um, that said, I'm very excited about what's happening with TV pilots. That's why I'm working on one because there's so many networks and with the, with Netflix and Amazon and Hulu developing their own series, I keep hearing they need writers. They need writers. So I'm mm-hmm. stoked about that. Um, I just feel like there, there's a door open for people who want to be diligent and get work done. Like, yeah. And maybe there'll be help along the way later. I don't know if how that, that's how it works, but um, we'll, well see. What's exciting about them, too, about the Netflix and whatnot, it feels like they're creating such different content. You know, they I are. feel like it seemed it well, at least from what I, I don't know. If it's through things I've read or interviews I've heard, but it's like, they're kind of more like getting out of the way, you mm-hmm. know, right. like, like, yes, sounds great. Do it. Make you it. know, whereas the networks are more controlling. Uh, yeah. 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 And of course they've got more of a mainstream audience to worry about. And, I guess, you know. you know, the older I get, the more I wonder who's the mainstream. Like, right. Who, who, and like, Right. If we're all loving this other content, (laughs) why why are you diluting everything? Who are those people? (laughs) So I just want to talk about hit record real quick. Oh yeah, Um, that that the reason why we started. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we've worked on a lot of comedy projects together, and I was looking through. So I went back through your, you know, like you from the beginning and trying to see the stuff that we've done. And Uh man, you really pulled through for me on that human cheese um, (laughs) sketch. Oh yeah. That was fun. <laughs> but I remember I had this idea for, you know, uh, th- there was a time that I went vegan. I'm not vegan right now. But there was a time that I went vegan because, and I've been vegetarian since I was 18. Mm-hmm. But um, I was nursing my son. And I was like, holy smokes, cow's milk is for baby cows. Like, like it just was like, Ding. yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. And I was like, I can't eat, I can't eat cheese anymore, you know? And so that's kind of the idea behind human <laughs> cheese was that we would make <laughs> yeah. cheese made you know, of There's a guy humans. in Britain that does it for real. Yeah. They sell it. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine. I don't think it's legal here, probably. Oh. Um so it was like for humans by humans, and I and I asked some of uh, some of you guys to help me out, and I swear within a day, and you you're sending me a video, and you you got a blanket as if you're nursing, you got an extension cord coming out. <laughs> 
now a fake commercial from our fake sponsor. You love cheese. Who doesn't? But have you ever really stopped to think about where your cheese comes from? Cows, goats. Do you know why they make their milk? For their babies. Are you a baby cow? <laughs> I don't think so because I don't speak cow and I'm pretty sure you understand me right now. Introducing the latest in ethical food trends. Human cheese for humans by humans. Now that sounds more appropriate. Our cheese is made from local farmers like Sally here. It's organic. Or Kristen. I specialize in garlic flavored. We even offer tangier varieties. Meet Edna. Blue cheese anyone? So come on down and try it. Human cheese. It's delicious. So my approach to hit record when I came to it, I was really shy and in my my little world and I had not tried a lot of things. And I got so excited at the concept of hit record, what it is and how it works and the sandbox of resources that are there. It just the fun factor threw me over the moon and so I just endeavored to say yes to as many things as I could say yes to. So they, you know, like when you sign up, it asks you what your interests are and I started with just my, you know, the ones I'm familiar with, my comfort zone. Right. And then I was like, why the hell not? Who cares? This is like we're just playing here. This doesn't like I know there's that whole attraction of what's going to get picked up for funding, but at least when I first came, when we weren't on funded projects as much, I was just like having fun and just yeah. yes, I want to do another creative outlet. So, yeah, so that's how all of that came with. to be. I was doing like Veronica. What was that? I was like yeah. creating you, characters. That's for the apartment complex. Yes, I haven't done yeah. any acting before, but I was like, I can try. Sure, why not? And um, and that's so fun it's just too. Been, it's it? fun to say yes to, that. and that's what I miss. Like I love that our comedy work and uh, and the progress that we're making on it. But and and I almost also didn't have as many personal projects in the works at the time. So it was more of an outlet for me, but I kind of miss just like going in there and playing. I need to, yeah. it's probably time to just go see, you know, who needs a contribution and come right. out of left field with something wacky. Cause, yeah. and it's a good community for, for like, it's okay. You can fall on your face, you know, and I think female com mm -hmm. comedians like Amy Schumer that are like, they're f totally fine falling on their face and being crazy kind of give mm -hmm. us permission to like, just take the risk, just do it. It yeah. might, you might look like a dork. Um, but just do it. And that's how we ended up on where we're at with the comedy. Like it, yeah. we just kind of, I think we found each other. <laughs> yeah, we all did. Our, we really did group. find each other. And yeah, it's such a safe place, isn't it? It's it is. like, it's like the safest place on the internet. It's yeah. so scary to think that if it would right. ever change. <laughs> When they do those but yeah, changes, it's almost like you, you. I would put something there mm -hmm. that I would never put anywhere else. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yes. Um, but at the same time, it is on the internet. It's it yeah. is the it is the right. regular internet. It's findable. Okay. So I'm traceable, you know. But um, I've got funny voices on there and things that I never would do in any other setting in my life. I'm not going to go to open mic night. I'm not going to sing karaoke. Um, but I can play around on hit record and. It's been surprising the kinds of things that do get picked up and used. Um, 
when I've gotten your testimonials are great. You know, I think um, because you've lived such a life. And and I'm like the old lady there. So, uh, you know, not many, (laughs) there aren't many mothers of grown kids hanging around hit record. Um, And (laughs) but it's it's those I feel like I bring a perspective to those topics. Like when I did, um, excuse me, when I was on the um, the one Lydia did. That was yes, a um, the Encyclopedia of Lydia. Yeah, that was a little web series I would have never ever done in any other context. But um, that was a great outlet to talk about that sexual repression. You know, it was yeah, it was surprising. So, no clue what we're talking about. Here's a clip. Hello, I'm Tia. T.S. Levings on the site. And I really want to do um, one of these Encyclopedia of Lydia challenges. All right. Who told me about the birds and the bees? I learned at church, which is not something I recommend, by the way. Uh, Did it differently when I raised my kids. I had this loaded religious background. Um, In the United States, it's known as Southern Baptist. And um, they kind of hit you in the vagina with the Bible. It's the only way to say it. It's very sexist. The birds and bees were preached from the time I was a little kid, with a lot of scare tactics and fear around them. They said we'd get gongorrhea, they really said it that way, Uh, syphilis, pregnant, shamed, ruin our lives, if we had sex before marriage. And then you just recently hosted um, the weekly writing challenge. I did. Right? Yeah, I took a rotation. How was that? that? But I was really blown away at the... um, creativity on the site just hit me fresh you know like oh my god we have some good talent here some really good writers oh or imaginative god, thinkers so much and talent. those kind of challenges generate so much content that could go into something longer form but it's just been how like how do we take all those little bits and edit them into something big or you know like rewriting is a really big part of writing and I feel like we have a lot of rough drafts on the hit record it's hard to right. know, like to grab something and see the value in it and then try to make it a collaborative thing is hard. It's the question of rights. Like sometimes I've I've found the longer I'm there, the more I weigh my creative ideas. Like, well, is this a hit record thing or is this a right. personal thing? Like, do I really want to put it there and make it part of hit record property or do I, you know, um, which didn't not used to be something I considered. It definitely yeah. is now. Yeah, I think about that sometimes, though I don't currently have – I want to make more stuff, but mm. I'm – like my entire life, I'm always like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Right. I don't know what I'm going towards, right? Like my whole – everything, my whole life has just been like wandering and falling into good things uh-huh. and, and without a lot of planning. So it's like sometimes like, yeah, I want to do something myself – but I don't know what that is. And so what should I be keeping for myself and what should I be? And, um, but I think a lot of times I'm saying, am I really, you know, if, if this could get a life through hit record rather than sitting on my phone Mm -hmm. or computer getting forgotten. It is the break. Like, I think it's easy to forget before hit record existed, before we had it in our creative flows, we ha- you have to have an outlet, a way to get your stuff out there somehow, and Hit Record right. provides that. So then, uh, why isn't it appropriate for that kind of endeavor? You know, like share mm-hmm. it with Hit Record, collaborate with other people, get the product out there before the muse goes away to something else. Because 
that is that is that's a gift to us. I saw your sink fell out. Oh my god, and it's still not fixed. And on and Monday I saw night, that I was go, we- go ahead. Yeah, so I was weeping. I was like, gonna have to wash like six days worth of teenager dishes, which is like melted and- on cheese and crap. It's gross, you know. But come on, why didn't you so- switch to paper plates, Tia? So <laughs> for the week, <laughs> why didn't I? Um, because I kept thinking they're coming the next day. They're coming the next day. <laughs> And I didn't know my dishwasher was going to break at the same time. So right. by the time that happened, it was like, okay, nobody else in my family is going to take this on. They're going to just continue to stack stuff. And the repair right. guys aren't even going to fix it if the dishes are all over the counter. You know, that's not going to happen. So I had to carry everything from the dishwasher back to the bathroom, wash it in a little tiny single basin sink. And then I had to do everything on the counters and then everything that was on the table. And then I went and bought the paper plates and paper cups. Okay. And I'm so glad because today's Thursday. And they still aren't here. So <laughs> it's like, oh my God. It, there's no First fire. of all, okay, yeah. this is grossing me out because I don't even like, I like, I hate, I lived in Mexico for a while and uh, disposals are not a thing uh-huh. really in right. Mexico. And so you have only the thing that is the strainer in the drain and it uh-huh. gets the food and then you have to touch it uh-huh. and throw it away and it's so disgusting. Okay. So how did you in your bathroom not send food down the sink? You just had to scrape everything. Okay, yeah, really well? so I I scraped everything really well first. You know, I have a it's really weird. I would rather deal with a load of cloth diapers than I would wash dishes. For some reason, dish yeah. washing is like the thing that I hate more than uh-huh. anything else. I can I can Buddha my way through it with some podcasts and I can be a big girl and get the shit done, but I hate it. So I uh-huh. Uh, so, I have to interrupt yeah, you there yes. because I actually had in the kids section, I was going to ask you. So the thing I hate more than anything, uh-huh. uh, one is making school lunches because my kids oh, eat hot yes, lunch Jesus. only and I have yes. to make a hot lunch every morning. <laughs> and the, but I'm hating that less this year, but the, the, my number one is brushing children's teeth and having to look in someone else's mouth and get involved in there. It is gag worthy. I hate it. Okay, yes. so I want to know how old <laughs> You're are not your like wor- answer. <laughs> and also, they never brush their teeth unless they're told. Yes, and this drives me bananas. It could be if you don't leave the house on like a weekend, and it's five o'clock in the afternoon. And you say, "Have you brushed your teeth today?" No, no, <laughs> nobody told me. So, honey, in my I- experience, <laughs> in my experience with my three boys. Um, you are about to enter a year, uh, a many years section of trials and tribulations (laughs) that are going to tax you mightily. The boys are gross. The rolled up socks, the, the messy rooms, the eating, it's just disgusting. Uh And then they emerge like butterflies, little butterflies, (laughs) (laughs) and they know how to do things like take a shower every single day, sometimes two or three times a day. Like 15, 16? Um, How old are we talking? Sure. So, like, I feel like it it regresses. Seventeen's a hard year. the The two years I hate the most are thirteen and seventeen. And mm-hmm. let me caveat: I love the teenage years. I'm not going to be one of those parents that that's like teenagers are gross and horrible. We're talking about the grossest part of them right now. And I would say the two hardest years in my experience has been thirteen and seventeen for all my kids. Um, but yeah 15 like they're like they're dating and they're like into the hygiene it's different for every family from what i hear right. but but the the fact that it happens 
is universal. Like they, and you're, you will go crazy if, if it's on your conscience, like they, yeah. you have to be I willing just really, to be I want, I want to get to the day where I don't have to tell people to brush their teeth. <laughs> yeah. So you'll get there, but what will happen is that doesn't mean they're brushed. You'll get to the point where you give no fucks. But it doesn't mean your kid's teeth are clean. It means you're not going to fight that war anymore. I'm not getting involved in it anymore. Oh, my God. But, I mean, and maybe it does mean they're brushed. Maybe they, they use that pressure off to, like, take care of themselves. But, yeah, yeah, no, I think what happened is I uh, some switch flipped in me, and I was like, no more life points. That gets right. no more life points. I have other things I want to go do. If they stink, if they have cavities, that's on them. I will pay for their dental care, but I am not – Um. I'm I'm not gonna spend any of my evening on that. You know what you need right. to go do. I'll tell them. You know, go brush your teeth, take a shower. But uh, that's it. They don't do it. It's on them. <laughs> so it, it takes it takes a transition because I've had to be. I've been embarrassed places. I've been like, yeah, those are mine. Um, yeah. And they came there. They came here like that. <laughs> oh my but gosh. I'm lax. That I mean, you have so many data points too. It's like, uh... <laughs> yeah, and it's like I just. I'm, I don't know. They're they're awesome. My people are all awesome. They they've they've figured this stuff out, um, and I'm definitely a relaxed parent that way. In that I pick my battles, and I'm really strict and adamant on the things I pick. But those mm-hmm. are so few and far between that everything else is like okay. We're pretty relaxed, neglectic around here. I interrupted the 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 sink story. What I learned about that story was that you have phone anxiety. Right? Yes. You don't... I don't call. Yeah. I wanted to hear about that because I have, I have like a very kind of specific kind of phone anxiety, I think, where it's like, I can, if I, I can call a place where I know their job is to answer the phone and serve me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I can call the bank and I can call for a pizza and I can... I couldn't always. I remember my when my parents got divorced, my dad and I were alone the first time. And he was like, you want a pizza? I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, we'll call the pizza place. I was like, you call the pizza place. Oh, right, and we're exactly. like, well, what are we going to do? So funny. <laughs> call for but pizza. now. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. But now <laughs> I can do that. But if I have to call someplace where I don't know if they're expecting my call and I don't know if they're going to want to help me like if I have to call someone for a favor or even if I have to call someone if to call someone I know but I don't know if they're busy or if this is a good time or right that is horror for me I don't want anything to do with that like just even the anticipation of having to do that (gasps) yeah same so I text first like can I call you and I think maybe that's just the way our culture kind of changed. Like texting is so much more respectful of their space and time. Yeah. Some people think it's obnoxious to text, but I'm like, no, I text to ask and I don't like, I won't call the bank. I make my husband do that. Um, I won't call for pizza. That's what the internet's for. Um, <laughs> like, I'm just really grateful I live when I live. You just don't. The only yeah, time you, I've you ever don't been, like. I, I hate it. I hate it. And because but I, how about I used to calling stutter. your kids? No problem there. Oh no, no, I, I, no problem. No problem with my people. I'm, I, right. Yeah. So deep work gives me shallow work time, and that is perfect for catching up on phone calls. So this year, another one of my resolutions. I'm a big New Year, New Year's resolution person. Um, one of my other things I'd endeavored to do this year was to stop just having lunches out with friends because they're like appointments. I want to spend time hanging out with my girlfriends again, 
And that means talking to the ones that like the phone. So mm-hmm. I can do that. But my, my phone anxiety really comes from a stuttering habit I had all growing up through my oh. divorce. And the only time I've ever been really good on the phone is when um, I had to, when I was in sales and I was writing and I was selling my writing packages and I was talking to executives from all these industries, I had to speak with a lot of authority. And because our entire life was on the line and I was sole breadwinner, I could do it. I could like right. pull this power out and, and do it and then like get my head around it and just get the damn thing done. But without that like psych up, forget it. Um, I'm going to text. I'm going to avoid. I'm going <laughs> to do everything yeah. I can to train and eliminate. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm not proud I, of I it. read that. I, I read that just little line about like the, 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 you know, introvert and anxiety or something. Yes. And I was like, she doesn't like talking on the phone either. Mm. And I didn't realize it was a thing. Like it's called phone anxiety, you know, and it's like a specific thing. And when I read about it years ago, I was like, oh, I have that. Uh Like I was Uh like, I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not abnormal. I have to read about it. I've never actually dealt with it like as a real thing. I just figured it was right again. Life. Well, now there's all the kinds of anxiety, right? Everyone's, everyone's. I'm so thankful we can talk about it now. I think I've had generalized anxiety since I was a kid and never knew what to call it. And always thought mm-hmm. something was just wrong with me. Um, mm-hmm. Well, now there's a fix for it. So there's several right. fixes. So it's uh, it's kind of calming to know that it's is fairly totally normal. be able to call it something yeah. and deal with it, face it, or just acknowledge its presence in the room. You know, like yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. thank you so much for talking to me today. This, this is fun. Was really fun. Yeah, I, ho- I hope there's something like I love the concept of the podcast of the not nosy and. Um, <laughs> And I'm interested to see where it goes with, uh, with what kind of interviews I, come out of it. I am also interested to see where. It goes. Yes. <laughs> well, I, you, and it's one of those things that you just don't know until you you get a few under your belt and and yeah. Uh, but you had your stuff so. together. <laughs> very good. I can't wait to see what comes of it. It's going to be, awesome. and I'm very honored to be chosen to be like even even an early interviewer. That's like yeah. Yes. Well, it was great, and also I feel very comfortable with you. So, yeah, it's um, so good to get like yeah. our feet wet this way. Yeah, stick around; it's not over yet. That was a great um, conversation with Tia. Thank you for listening. I was really honored that she shared so much with us about her birth stories, and especially about the story of her daughter. Um, and and I thought it was just really sincere and open um, what she shared. And so thank you, Tia, for that. And, you know, we, we did touch on it, but it really is so helpful when people talk about out loud the challenges that they're experiencing, the, tr- the struggles that they're going through. Um, because so much, especially with these curated lives that we're living right now where we're just kind of so many people just put their best self out on the internet um it can be easy to feel kind of isolated or less than or uh different but at the same time there are a lot more people talking about all sorts of things, talking about issues that they're going through, whether it be mental health issues or uh, challenges, struggles that they're going on in their lives. And it, I, I believe it helps people enormously because now 
we don't feel so alone. We can relate to people on a deeper level, and we understand that um, that nobody's perfect, you know. And and now you have someone uh, out there that that you can connect to and relate to and feel less alone. So so thank you, Tia, and thank you to everyone that's um, doing that kind of stuff out there. So Tia. When when Tia started talking about writing, I, I mean, she is just so you can follow her on Instagram at T.S. Loving's Writer, and uh, she does a lot of stories and and she really lets you inside her whole process of everything that she's thinking and doing and and um and it's just so interesting to watch someone through their process of making their art and all of all of the writing that she's doing and that she wants to do and all of the processes that she's trying to uh, implement in order to make it happen. You know, sometimes we hear about celebrities and they're, you know, oh, I needed to write a movie or I needed to write my book. So I went to my cabin in the mountains for like two months and just locked myself there, you know, totally sequestered. Of course, that's not a possibility. For a lot of us, and she's certainly busy with um, her job and her homeschooling and her life and also all of her writing. And so it's just really interesting to see the processes that she's using and, and trying out and going through in order to accomplish her goals. So I'd never heard of pulp writing before. That's a really interesting con- concept of just the, the speed of, of writing, just getting content out there. I've had projects. I've had projects that I've worked on that never came to fruition because I was trying to get it so perfect that I just never even launched it. And then the next time uh, I wanted to do a project, I did the exact opposite of that, which was I came up with an idea and I tried to launch it within like a day because I didn't want to wait anymore. So and and then there's definitely also, of course, the the in between. Speaking of in between, so T and I, uh, as I mentioned, we we worked on several projects together on Hit Record. um, And most recently, the comedy podcast. So before we did the one called Pod Past, which you can still listen to, it's 18 minutes of sketch comedy made from uh, the Hit Record community, and you can find it at podpast.com or on Hit Record. Um, but before that, we were doing kind of uh, trial episodes of just sketch comedy podcasts. And um, and on those ones, I think we were getting a little tired of projects that just took forever to get to completion. And so we were turning those around um, in six to eight weeks, which may sound like a long time, but sketch comedy takes a lot because you have to write the sketches, edit them, then get the voices. You know, it's a multi-step process. And we were able to pull it off in six to eight weeks. And then then we came up with this podcast idea and it was a little more focused and we we're trying to be just make it a little more and a little better. Uh, but again, we got weighed down somehow. I, I don't know if it was schedules or um, or scope or a little bit of everything, but I mean, it took us almost a year to get those 18 minutes together. Um, and of course, it's got you know, like 100 contributors. So it's it's incredible when we can come together and make something. But I think speed is, um, there's some value to doing things fast as well. So I actually just messaged Tia and asked her for an update on what's going on, what's new, um, because I did interview her several months ago. 
And lots of stuff is going on and is new. She's um, she's starting something. She's the co-founder of something called Giantess Press, uh, which is going to include a publishing house. And they are going to publish her book that's going to come out in April called Plotting Your Novel with the Plot Clock. And it's a collaboration with her and two other authors, Joyce Sweeney and Jamie Morris, with a foreword by Ryan Van Cleve. And so uh, so congratulations, Tia. That's really exciting. And she's also uh, just recently put up a concept, and I'm not sure if it's an official project yet, but she's definitely pitched a new concept that I'll try and link to in the description on Hit Record called the Collaborative Novel Project. And it's her concept in an experiment in long-form fiction, working as a team. And um, she's got this whole methodology figured out of how to get a kind of a large group of people together to create a work of, a, a long work of fiction. So it's really interesting. It's got some people that are interested. And, you know, if that sounds like something that might be up your alley, I would definitely check it out. And just recently on uh, on Instagram, actually, so if you're following, go to Not Nosy Podcast on Instagram. And I asked, uh, I asked the followers how often you think that I should publish this podcast once a week. It's not currently uh, possible for me, but we're going to go for every other week. So, so the goal here is that every other Tuesday... Uh, You can look for a new Not Nosy episode with a new artist and a new conversation. And again, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, and I don't know, everything, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. I mean, like, I don't know. It's just just out there. So I hope you can subscribe and wherever they let you rate it, five stars, and leave a review. It's just so, so helpful. So thank you so much for taking a few minutes to do that. And I would love to hear from you. Again, I'm Not Nosy Podcast uh, on all social media. And you can email me and just let me know what you think um, and who you'd love to hear, what kind of questions you'd like to ask what you liked, what you didn't like. It's all still kind of getting sorted out. So uh, feedback is amazing. And you can email me at notnosypodcast at gmail.com. So thanks so much for spending this time with me. I'm Rebecca Carter. I'll see you next time. Bye. (music) 